Well, if you would join me in turning to Hebrews chapter 3. Our first Sunday in Hebrews 3, and then next Sunday is, is uh, the baptism Sunday and a break from Hebrews, and then back into Hebrews 3 on the, on the 20th of January. Hebrews 3 this morning, 1 through 6, and the title, as you'll see, comes from verse 1. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, I'll read it and invite you to follow along and then we'll pray once more. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray again. Father, would you come by your Spirit and through your Spirit and point us to your Son and to consider Jesus again and more deeply. Father, we need your help to see, to open, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may see him and know him more and love him more. And Father, guard us from trifling with your word from, and from error. And Father, help us to be serious, joyfully serious about this truth, these truths, and help us to see and embrace your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Consider Jesus. That's an easy one. This is uh, easy. This is like shooting fish in a barrel, uh, which I've never done, but I hear, it, I mean, I think it would be easy. Uh, consider Jesus. This is, that's easy, right? So I stand up here and tell you right from the text, look, consider Jesus. That's a good challenge to Christians. Consider Jesus. That's a good challenge and call to Christians on a communion Sunday and every Sunday. That's essentially what all Christian preaching is or ought to be. That's what Sunday school is about. And our children's and students and college ministries need to be about. A call to consider Jesus. That's a good challenge and call to Christians entering into a new year. 
too. What should Christians focus on? What should their priority be? Their goal? What should be renewed? Recommitted to? Rebuilt? As we think about our lives and what needs changing. Our considering of Christ. Maybe you think that the call to consider Jesus is only for unbelievers. Then you'd be wrong. It's to Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing. Self-professing, confessing Christians, those who claim to be Christians who have repented and professed faith. He writes to them, to the church, to you. Consider Jesus. He is writing, saying, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you who are, in this case, in their case, facing increasing persecution and therefore temptation to turn away from Jesus, focus your attention further on Jesus. Pay much closer attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to all that Jesus is and said and did, lest you drift away from it to your eternal destruction. Fix your eyes on Christ. Jesus stands victorious for you and with you, having conquered death and the devil and sin. So look to Him. Make Him the conscious object of your mind. That is the prescription for tempted and embattled Christians facing despair, persecution, temptation, even unbelief. Consider Jesus, and in this, by this, endure to the end. The author is aware, God is aware that the danger is constantly in our way, that we will stop considering Jesus and become more interested in considering other things and thereby drifting away from the Word and from the way of the Lord and from the Lord Jesus Himself and perhaps never return. And therefore, proving that we never truly shared in the heavenly calling to begin with. This is why this letter to the Hebrews calls us Christians again and again to consider Jesus. And this is a side note here before we launch into the text. This isn't a new thing in the New Testament. This isn't, this isn't a rare thing. In the New Testament, this call to consider, to engage the mind in in the direction of Christ. Colossians 3.2, Paul writes there, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. 
Philippians 3, 18 through 20, Paul again writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, Paul again, verses 5 and 6. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And one more that, that will sound familiar to, to you, I think. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, Christians, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Set your minds on things that are above. Consider Christ. You'll read that all over the New Testament, that, that theme. We Christians are called to take the path of the exercise of our minds. It is what we dwell on, what we think about. We're, we're called to take the path of the exercise of our minds by actively choosing to focus our attention on Jesus Christ and all that He is for us. Because if we don't, our minds are naturally drawn to other things, lower things, lesser things. And we fall in love with those things. And we will drift away from Him. It is when we focus our minds on Jesus and His glory and His person and His work that we are steeled, emboldened, encouraged, matured, transformed from one degree of glory to another as we become more like what we think about. Namely, him. So this isn't a small call to consider Jesus. May, maybe this moment could be for you a new resolve as we look out into this new year. Consider Jesus. Be more and more intentional about what your mind considers. Are you in a Bible reading plan? Are you reading your Bible? Are you memorizing Scripture? Are you in a Bible study? What are you doing with your thought life? What are you doing with all of that free time you have? What are you focusing your mind on? What are you, what are we considering? Now, consider what about Jesus? In Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, 
We'll just walk through these verses today. Uh, not necessarily any big headers for you. Uh, the headers are the verses, or the, the signposts are the verses themselves this morning. So let's walk through together. Verse 1, through the call to consider Jesus. Let's read that again. Therefore, holy brothers, holy brothers, Christians, if we didn't catch it, clarifies, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Stop there. So, the author begins this new section built upon chapters 1 and 2 by reminding the recipients of the letter, the Christians at Rome facing increasing persecution, that they are holy brothers. That is, members of God's family sanctified by the cross work and resurrection of Jesus which the author had just discussed at the end of chapter 2, who share in a heavenly calling, he writes. That is, who by God's grace, those who have heard and by God's grace responded to the call that comes from heaven, from God himself. It is a heavenly calling because it invites us and it affects the coming, and then it leads us to heaven, to God. It's a heavenly calling. And this is precisely what lost sinners needed and need, who could neither hear the call of God nor heed it, not wanting to, are able to respond to it. Blind in our sin and rebellion, lost in this world. We needed an effectual, heavenly calling. And we needed someone to take care of our sin and make us holy and then blaze the trail before us and lead us home to heaven. We needed a heavenly calling. And the way God did this in Christ for us and for God's glory, is described next in verse 1. We'll add the next phrase starting at the beginning, though. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now here, the author says two things about Jesus that are crucial for us to know. Two things that Jesus, in fact, must be if we are going to ultimately hear the call of God and then, and then ultimately share in that heavenly calling. He says, first, briefly, that he is Jesus the Apostle. That's an odd thing. Uh, we, we don't think about Jesus as, as an apostle. We think Jesus had apostles, 12 of them. He was an apostle, says this writer. How so? Well, he, Jesus, is the preeminent 
sent one, isn't he? And that's all that apostle means. Sent one. Isn't Jesus the preeminent sent one? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Being sent by the Father to the earth. And not just merely sent, but sent with a message. He is Jesus the Apostle. The Apostle sent to us. And, and secondly, he's noted here to be Jesus the High Priest of our confession. He, in other words, is the go-between who offers a sacrifice so that there can be reconciliation between creator and creature. We sinned and has to be dealt with. And between king and subject, we, we've rebelled. Jesus is the high priest, the go-between. Believers and everyone, consider this Jesus as you and as you consider him, as you fix your gaze on him, remember that the reason is because he is our apostle and our high priest, the one graciously and lovingly sent from God to powerfully and infallibly bring us to God. Now let's add verse 2. Therefore, holy brothers... Verse 1, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who, verse 2, was faithful to him, who appointed him, sent him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Why? Well, that's a little strange. Seems strange that the author would all of a sudden mention Moses at this point, let alone something so specific about Moses. He, he was faithful in all God's house. Where is this coming from? And where is the author going with this line of thought? I think if you remember that the author has been laboring throughout the first two chapters to establish the supremacy of Christ over angels. Just strange too. But not strange if you recall that it was through the agency of the angels that the law of Moses was given. And then... It isn't all that strange that the author should turn to the supremacy of Jesus Christ over Moses, too. Remember, the Christians at Rome were tempted, we surmise, to turn back from Jesus and from the new covenant in his blood back to the law of Moses and to the sacrificial system of the blood of rams and goats and bulls. Don't turn back, he said. Don't turn back to a messenger and a message 
I cannot save you. Stick with the messenger. And the message is Jesus and the gospel that can save you. And so the author turns to Moses and to Christ's supremacy over him. All in the name of lifting high the glory and worth of Jesus and encouraging these embattled believers to hold on to Jesus, to look to Jesus, to hold on to the gospel. Remember, the author is striving to help these Christians stay Christians. Make it to the end. Focus on this truth about Jesus, he say. Because in considering this, in meditating on these truths about Jesus, your confidence in your heavenly calling will be made stronger. And your hope will be more bold. And by God's grace, as you fix your gaze on Christ, He will bring you through. And by the way, this isn't about belittling Moses. Quite the opposite, in fact. The author says there in verse 2 that Moses was faithful in all God's house. That is, in his ministry to the people of God. Moses was faithful, and, and the author very much likens the faithfulness of Moses in a positive way to the faithfulness of the Son of God. That's high praise. Not belittling. Now, how is Jesus superior to Moses? Greater than Moses. Worthy of more glory than Moses. And this brings us to verses 3 through 6. Verse 3 and 4 first. Let's read them again. 4 begins in verse 3. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How much? More. Well, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Verse 4, for every, a little parenthetical, for every house is built by someone, the builder of all things is God. So first, we have two bits here, Jesus over Moses. The first bit is that Jesus is the builder of the house and the maker of Moses and me. Jesus is the builder of the house and the maker of Moses and me and you. The point here, I think, becomes obvious again. These Hebrew Christians should not fall back from the new covenant in Christ to the old covenant of Judaism. The law of Moses. Jesus is superior even to the greatest old covenant hero. As great as he was, that is Moses, through whom the old covenant was delivered. Therefore, Jesus' new covenant is also superior. Verse 3 says that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. First, in relation to God's house. 
God's family. That's what's being talked about here. And the author gives a really important and amazing reason why. He says that the builder of the house, just as a general rule in the world, in reality, the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Therefore, more glory. In other words, Jesus is to the people of God as a builder is to a house. Moses is to the people of God as one of the people of God is to God's house. Moses is in the house. Jesus built the house. And the reason we know that is that the comparison in verse 3 is that of the honor and glory of the builder of the house and that of the house itself, which he means to illustrate the difference between Jesus and Moses. And guess who verse 4 says is the builder of all things? God. So in agreement with himself from the first few verses of the letter, verses 3 and 4 put together say that Jesus is God and that Jesus built the house, built the family of God, and that Moses is part of the house, part of the family. Jesus made the house, Jesus made Moses, and Jesus made you and me and all who by God's grace are brought into the family of God through repentance and faith. He made us both physically and spiritually. He makes the house. He makes the family. Moses is part of the family. Don't worship Moses. Or the angels that delivered the law to Moses. Ponder this, he say. Consider this about Jesus. He is that big, that in charge, that magnificent, on him hangs all our hope of heaven. And he must call, and he must pay, and he must guide and keep. Our confidence is in Christ and his work and him alone. Consider Jesus. And the more glorious he appears to you, and the greater he becomes in your vision, the greater will your hope be. The stronger your Footing will be as you face the winds of change and the storms of this world, and your confidence will remain steadfast as you look to Christ. Now, there's a second way in which Jesus is superior to Moses, given in verse 5 and first part of 6. Right? We had. Jesus over Moses. Jesus is the builder of the house and the maker of Moses and me. But now we have something more. Verse 5 and the first part of 6. Let's read it. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house. And there it is. That's important. As a servant. To testify to the things that were spoken, to be spoken later. The first 
part of six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a what? A son. Not a servant. A son. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. Moses was a servant. And what a servant. Wouldn't you like to be a servant like Moses? How well did he serve? And the law serve, and all of the Old Testament serve so well in its mission, in their mission to point to Jesus, the Son. Very well. They served and serve still. You know, this all means, by the way, that Moses' ministry was not in any way in conflict with that of Jesus. Moses served the Messiah promising God, and therefore, he served the Messiah. Verse 5 says that Moses testified, quote, to the things that were to be spoken later, that is, through the Messiah. God has spoken in former times through the prophets, but in these latter days he's spoken to us by a son. Moses testified to those things. The gospel Moses actually himself yearned for the day. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, by the way, during the life and ministry of Jesus, Moses did see it. You can read about that in Luke 9. So, I think it's worth saying that Jesus and Moses are pretty tight. Don't pit them against one another. They don't like that. That's not true. You're lying. You're misrepresenting Moses and Jesus when you play them off one another or these testaments off one another. Don't do that. In Matthew 5, Jesus made it clear that he had not come to abolish the law of Moses but to fulfill it, to complete it, to be all that the law of Moses pointed to and yearned for. And in John 5, Jesus told the unbelieving Pharisees, quote, Do not think that I will accuse you to the one God, the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus and Moses are tight. Do you see how tight? Really tight. There's no denigration of Moses here. In Hebrews 3. Only commendation. 
and blessing. But don't get mixed up. Don't give glory to Moses. Don't put your trust in Moses or in the law of Moses to save you. It wasn't sent to do that. It can't do that. Moses knew his place and knows it still. The law served its purpose well. They pointed to the Son. And that's the point made here by the author of Hebrews, verses 5 and 6. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is a son. As we've already seen, Jesus is the maker of the house, but he is also the son of the father of the house. And therefore, Jesus owns the house by inheritance and is Lord over the house. And he provides for those in the house, being faithful over it, says the text. By comparison, Moses is merely, and he loves to be, a servant in the house of God. And oh, that we would be half the servants that Moses was. Tenth. So consider Jesus. Consider all of this about Jesus. He is the maker of the house, and he is a son in the house, not a servant. Moses is a servant in the house. Don't serve and worship another servant. Which is what the angel said to John in Revelation. No, 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 he'd say. The angel says to John as he bows down to worship the angel. No, 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 no. Don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship the Son. Worship the Maker and the Son, Jesus. And now, consider Jesus, and in this, by this, endure to the end. And this is the rest of 6. 6b, if you want to call it that. He finishes this part of the text by saying, And we are his house. He's talking about himself and all the believers, professing believers in Rome that he's writing to. And we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. The house Jesus is building and in which Moses served is the one people of God, now made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, Gentiles like you and me, all brought to God through the one Son, through the one Spirit, to the one God, and there will be one family, one house, one shepherd. Paul and Peter wrote like this, talked like this. Paul in one place mixing temple and household together says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, he writes, For we, to Christians, to Christians he's writing, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And Peter, 1 Peter 2, talked this way. He wrote, 
As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the church of Jesus Christ is the house of God. We who believe are the household of God. Moses is one with us in that house. And he is our fellow servant, albeit perhaps the greatest of us all. But Jesus is our maker, our owner, our ruler, and our provider. We are his family, his house. If... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, we're, we're going to have, uh, I'm not avoiding this very important and tough issue, we're going to have several opportunities to talk about this in the coming weeks. That is... If you're listening and paying attention, I'm hoping you're troubled by that. Uh, if, I'm hoping you're troubled by that. If, we're God's house. If. But let me just say a couple things and, and then we'll stop for this morning. And I promise we will not be able to avoid what to do with these conditional statements concerning whether or not we're saved based on our holding on to the end. The evidence that we are a part of the household of God, we can say at least this about this verse, the evidence that we are part of the household of God is that we don't throw it away, ultimately. We don't throw our hope away. We don't drift away into indifference, and unbelief, staying there and ending there, which would prove that it was never real in the first place. No. True believers, true sons and daughters of God in Christ, necessarily hold fast to the end, proving that we were saved from the beginning. Now, I will draw in verse 14. I know that's not part of our text, but I think we have to have it here. Hebrews 3:14, just a few verses down, or the next page or whatever for you, says, he, he's still on the subject, which we'll hit again in two weeks. Verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ, if... Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Read that. Listen to that again. In the tenses and when things happened. For we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm 
to the end. So, we are not saved by our endurance to the end. Our endurance to the end proves that we were saved at the beginning when we first believed by God's grace. So the call is to endure, to hold fast. Hold fast our confidence in Christ and our hope in Him. Be bold, be confident. And how? Well, it's, it's what we've already looked at. It's the great theme of Hebrews. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Focus on Him. Courage and confidence come from seeing Jesus always before you. In every area of life, every day, and in every circumstance. And the first thing that popped into my mind was that hymn at this point yesterday, Be Thou My Vision. What do you think you're singing when you sing that? You're singing this. Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light. In the last verse, the last stanza, High King of Heaven, my victory won, May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. That's what we're singing there. Consider Jesus. There really is no better New Year's message than this, to let Jesus Christ be your vision your banner, the source of all of your confidence and hope to call you to fix your thoughts on Him, to contemplate, consider the sufficiency of His work on your behalf, and to reflect upon the love that bore your sins. Jesus is the great apostle sent by God to bring us the news of salvation. He won't fail. He is the great high priest of our confession, who reconciles us to God by His work on the cross and then rising from the dead. Nothing now shall separate us from the love of Christ, we who by God's grace have been redeemed and who confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead. The house of God will not be torn down ever. And we are His house if, indeed, we hold fast to the end by the grace of God in the strength that He provides. Now, I know that's just to introduce a tough topic that raises all kinds of questions. Come back uh, in a couple weeks. We have a lot more work to do on this issue. We'll leave it here. The call to consider Jesus Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this call and for making it possible through your word and by your spirit to fix our eyes and to consider Jesus and to know him and to come to him. You make all of these things possible by your grace. And Father, do it now in the lives of believers here as we think about communion. Father, help us to focus on Christ crucified and risen. And Father, for an unbeliever here, Father, would you bring to mind all that's been said here and all that they've ever heard that they would pay much closer attention to the gospel and that by your grace they too would come. Father, be with us now as we focus our attention and our minds on the gospel of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.